Hebrews 10, 19. Now, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. All right. We have confidence. The confidence does not come from us. The confidence comes from the blood of Jesus. Now, if we remember in the earthly tabernacle, through the high priest, he would enter once a year by the blood of a bull and goats. But that was the earthly tabernacle. And the blood of bulls and goats provided limited access to God by the high priest once a year. That has now changed. And we can be confident now to enter not an earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly tabernacle not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have unlimited, unrestricted access to God. And we never had that before. We can come to God with boldness and with confidence. We are well-received and we receive a favorable hearing. Some are bold enough to translate confidence as we have free access or free speech before God, implying that we not only confess the Lord Jesus Christ, but we have unlimited, unrestricted access when it comes to prayer. And it's all by the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary. Now it continues. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Okay. There is now a new way, a living way to God. Before, it was the priest of a, on, on the Day of Atonement, but it was through dead animals. All sacrifices were dead. But now it is through a living way because Jesus Christ is not dead, but he has risen from the dead. And he is not entering the realm of an earthly tabernacle, but the realm of a heavenly tabernacle by his flesh. Now this is a reminder to us of the resurrection of the body. Jesus Christ not only entered the heavenly tabernacle according to his soul, but according to his body. He was raised from the dead, body and soul, and so we will be. So that our bodies will rise again. And that's why we confess 
the resurrection of the body. Okay? So he has opened a new and living way. Okay? When the priest went in on the Day of Atonement, he was the only one allowed in. No one else could enter. That's what we mean by limited access. And you remember and recall that it keeps saying over and over again that the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin and cannot give you a clear conscience. We're going to see more of that. But it all begins with this em emphasis on the body of Christ, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So our high priest enables us to approach God with confidence. Okay? Now this is a very important concept as we will see later on. Okay, now, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Remember that from the liturgy? Let us draw near with a true heart. Confess your sins to God, our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. The old hymnal. This is where true heart comes from. What does it mean? A true heart has several things listed about it here. And one is it has the full assurance of faith. Okay? Or a faithful faith. Any faith that we have is a gift from God. We cannot generate faith in Christ on our own. The gift of faith is a gift of God to us. When we hear the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, faith is worked in our hearts. All right? Faith is worked in our hearts. The fullness of faith is the gift of God. Okay? It is the gift of God. Now, but there's more to it than just that. Notice it says, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right. Notice our hearts are cleansed from an evil conscious, conscience, a sinful conscience. That's what the children of Israel did not have. Their sins were atoned for outwardly, bodily. But the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ can. So we have two words here that should be important to us. One is sprinkled and one is washed. They immediately point us to the two sacraments, okay? To be sprinkled with blood indeed could easily refer to the Lord's Supper. For we receive the true blood of Christ with the wine, the true body of Christ with the bread sprinkled. And washing, of course, refers to baptism 
especially when it talks about pure water, because it's water that God gives as a gift. Okay? So, a true heart means that we acknowledge that God has given us the gift of faith. We see his gift. That our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ and we are fully forgiven all our sins and completely, even our conscience is clean. And we're washed with the pure water of baptism. With that heart given by God and under his gifts, you can approach God with confidence and boldness. Okay? You have access to God because you have the full and complete forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? Therefore, you don't approach God with fear. Your sins are forgiven. You don't approach God with guilt your conscience is clean. You don't shrink back from God. You can approach God freely and with confidence because you have a true heart worked by God in you. Worked by God in you. Therefore, you have free access to God. And it's not restricted or limited as it was with the tabernacle. Because as it said earlier, the curtain is no longer a barrier. The curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies is no longer a barrier. We read in Matthew, when Jesus died, it was torn in two. So we now have access to God. Don't shrink back. Okay? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is Faithful. Our confession is of the hope we have of the fulfillment of all the promises of God. We have them now, but they're not completely fulfilled until Christ comes again. Our hope is in his promises. One who promises because he's faithful. He does not break his promises. And let's remember the definition of the word hope. Hope in the scriptures is not used as we sometimes use it as a wish. I hope I get a good grade. I hope we get that house that we want. That's a wish. The word hope in Scripture means certainty. You've been to funerals and heard the pastor talk about the blessed hope of eternal life the blessed certainty of eternal life. It is not a hope if it's based on Jesus Christ. It is guaranteed. 
It is only a hope if it is somehow based on sinful people. So, we have this hope, all right? We have this hope. Um, We can come to God in Christ now as his forgiven people. But we hope for it's even going to get better, okay? Because evil and death and sickness will all be gone. Now we can come to him even in the midst of those things in this world. When he comes again, it will be the full inheritance of all the gifts that God has promised. So he's, the author is reiterating what he's talked about earlier in the chapter. And now he switches gears slightly in verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The actual word there is to provoke each other to do good works, and to love one another. The community of faith that now has access to God, the community of faith that now can come to God at any time, forgiven of their sins, and with full and free access of prayer, is now to be a community that does good works and shows love to one another. That's to be the quality shared in this world as we hope for the future promises. So he's describing life in the community. The word provoke is interesting. If we study it carefully, it's not like a cattle prod. What it's saying is, you are to show and do good works for one another and show love to one another to fulfill the needs of others without making them feel inferior without making them feel inferior. So it's not done to run somebody down or to say you're weak or to castigate somebody. You're just to do them to love one another and help fulfill each other's needs within the body of Christ. And that's what he is exhorting them to do in this verse. It continues in the next verse. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some. Do not neglect worship. That's what it says. A community of believers... is strengthened when they worship together. Now the first strength that they receive is the gifts of God. They hear the word of God that works faith in them, that reminds them of their sin, but also reminds them that they are fully forgiven their sins. But at the same time, there is a horizontal relationship going on. Just like this morning, it makes you feel good to be a part of this. Makes you feel good to be here. 
makes you feel good to see your fellow believers. Makes you feel good to talk to them. Maybe to share a trial you had this week. Maybe to share something good you had this week. But that you share it with fellow believers. That helps strengthen you. In the, in the, in the confessions, it's called the consolation, mutual consolation of the brothers. It's been likened to this. If you're going to cook a steak on the barbecue and you light one briquette, what's going to happen? It's going to go out. If you have a whole pile and they're all burning, it burns a long time. A Christian is like a charcoal briquette. And on its own, you're going out. You cannot sustain this on your own. So he is encouraging, do not stop meeting together as the habit, as is the habit of some. He's going to start getting into the whole matter of shrinking back from God instead of approaching him with confidence. He's going to start dealing with that. What is the first sign that a person may be shrinking back from God? He says it's they're not coming to worship. And that's true. That's true. That's one of the things that pastors need to do. It's very helpful. It's very easy to do at St. Paul's because you all sit in the same place every Sunday. If a pew's empty, I know who sits there, okay? But you got to keep track because as people tend to drift away, they stop coming to worship. It's a telltale sign. And that's what he's saying. Okay? As the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing nigh. The day is probably capitalized in your Bible because it's referring to the last day. It's referring, it's referring to Christ's second coming. So encourage one another as fellowship in the faith. Encourage one another to come to worship. When you see somebody, one of your friends that hadn't been in worship for two weeks, say something. We've missed you. We've missed you. Just that little nudge may help. Okay? encourage one another, and especially as we realize that the day of Jesus' return is drawing nigh. It is coming near. So we encourage one another. Okay. Now, he gets even more forceful. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The word deliberate is very important. It implies that there is a deliberate, willful, unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get more of that as we go through this, but that's what it's referring to. This is going all the way back to Hebrews chapter 6, where there was the warning, and we talked about that then, that this is the sin against the Holy Spirit only it's going to be defined more here. 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. All right. When you don't believe your sins are forgiven, then there is nothing but wrath. It says the fury of fire. The translation actually is the zeal of fire. In other words, God wants to save. That's his purpose. But when you reject his son, then... God, you're under wrath. There is no forgiveness. You're under wrath. And that fire consumes. And who he is he calling opponents? Everybody that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ when he comes again. God will not allow his holy people and his love for them to be threatened and he will destroy all opposition that will in any way shape or form try or prevent him from loving you he'll just destroy it he won't have it okay he won't have it. By opposing God's Son, you oppose God. And you're on the wrong side. Now he goes on. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We believe that that's a, a quote directly from the Old Testament, very close to it. Uh, I want you to look up Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning at verse 2. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you will inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gate that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Sounds like God's pretty serious there, doesn't it? He's not funning around. This then, the author of Hebrews, is applying, is applying directly towards those who do, who oppose God 
against, oppose God against his son, Jesus Christ. Only it gets worse, okay? Now, that was bad enough. You just read what God said in Deuteronomy. Now read the next verse, because he's asking you to be the judge. If that's bad, then how do you judge this? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? All right, you think it's bad for those that put aside the law of Moses What's it going to be like for those that put aside Jesus Christ? First, trampled. In other words, to show contempt for. In other words, it's implying that one time you believed it. Now you show other contempt for it. You speak evil of him. You have no time for him. It's deliberate contempt. Second part. Has profaned the blood of the covenant. Regarding the blood of the covenant, you're now saying it doesn't make you holy. It's profane. Cursed. It's a total rejection of the blood of the covenant. Instead of being a blessing to you, it is a curse. And the third part of the definition insults the spirit of grace. It is the Holy Spirit that brings the grace to you through the word. So three things, when we were talking about this deliberate sin, you trample Jesus Christ, you declare his blood of the covenant profane, and you insult the Holy Spirit. Then, that's what's being described here as deliberate and willful sin, of which there is no sacrifice for because you're rejecting Jesus Christ and the blood he shed as the sacrifice for you, so there's no other sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice that will take that away. You have separated yourself from God. You have become an opponent of God, and he will pour out his wrath on you. So, he is playing hardball now. And the reason he's warning them this way is because of this. These people were considering leaving the faith. They had come to faith in Christ, but now, because they had been persecuted... They're thinking about going back, possibly, to Judaism. The author is trying to convince them, as their pastor, you can't go back. There's nothing for you but the wrath of God if you go back. And that's why this very specific and tough warning. Don't do it. Don't trade all the promises of what you have in Jesus Christ to put yourself under the wrath of God. Don't do it. A pastoral warning. And then he goes on. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, 
I will repay. Okay? God will bring the vengeance. He will repay for rejecting his son. And, they, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It may be vindicate his people. That is, the first is he's going to show vengeance. Second is that vengeance will vindicate his people. Will vindicate his people. But it's God's action. He does not want us making these judgments. He's going to make them. Because he can see the heart. He can see the heart. And then a final warning. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Final warning. Don't go back. Don't go back. <clears throat> All right. But what are they to do? But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Okay, go back. Realize that after you were enlightened, and that means after you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you had a time of suffering. You had a time of suffering. A hard struggle with suffering. He doesn't minimize it. Sometimes being publicly exposed, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So in other words, they were publicly chastised for believing in Jesus Christ. That happened to some, and even if it did not happen to them directly, they are partners with them, and that chastisement falls on them too. falls on them too. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. All right, what it's actually saying is those that chastised and persecuted these Christians actually at times took away their property. They lost their property. But it's saying you were joyful even in that because you knew you had a better possession. You knew that they could take anything away from you that they wanted to take in this world, but you have a better possession. You have heaven. You have eternal life. You have the forgiveness of sins. You have access to God. You have better. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What is that confidence? That confidence is the confidence you have that you have full and unrestricted access to God. And that's a greater reward than anything that you're going to have in this world. It's not worth giving up for what you're going to have. He's pointing them to the future. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, <clears throat> you may receive what is promised. In other words, we have to endure. How do we endure? The only way we endure 
is to put our eyes on Jesus Christ, to hear his word, to receive the Lord's Supper, to remember our baptism. And then there's this quote. Part of it's from Deuteronomy, part of it is from Habakkuk. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. That is Jesus Christ. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The shrinking back is being afraid to approach God, not believing in his son for forgiveness, trying to approach God with guilt, fear. What happened to Adam and Eve when God came into the garden after they sinned? They shrank back. They hid. They hid. The author of Hebrews is warning them, don't do this. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You are righteous because of faith, and you have faith. Don't shrink back. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He is saying, you haven't done this yet. You haven't shrunk back yet. We are the ones that are going to stay. We're going to stay in the faith. We are going to be those who have faith And as faith, ones who have faith, our souls are safe and will be preserved. We're not going to shrink back. So this is one of the sections of Hebrews where we can really see the author of Hebrews that this is like a sermon. He's exhorting them as their pastor, don't do this. Don't go back. Don't go back. Eternal salvation waits on you. And what's the last thing he points to in this chapter? Faith. And the entire chapter 11 of Hebrews is about faith. Whole thing. Examples of faith. Okay? We'll go there next week. Let me stop, see if there are questions or comments. Yeah, Mark. Yes. Were they doing that just by negligence, or were there actually people who thought they didn't need to be in communion, community with other Christians? <coughs> okay. okay, Mark's question is, were they doing this through neglect, just thinking they didn't need this, or was it deliberate? We don't know. We do not know. Um, Certainly, there are people around in the church that don't think they need it. You don't have to talk to many people, you realize that. Yeah. So, my question, so if, if, if they do this and they say, well, I'm good with God, and he walks with me and talks with me and all that kind of thing, can you then move on to these other concerns that he, he then voices? in terms of neglecting the word, the sacrament, and so forth, even unwittingly, but by, by their carelessness. Yeah, I mean, you are separating yourself from God. 
be it deliberate or by simple neglect. See, the longer you're away from word and sacraments, the weaker your faith is going to get. The weaker your faith is going to get. And just by separating yourself, you are putting yourself into spiritual jeopardy. It certainly can be, and one of the problems with the services online, you know, our homebound, even though they're watching those online, the pastors still visit them and give them communion. If you watch church online all the time, you never receive the sacrament. That is a problem. That is a problem, a long-term problem. Yes, it can be. Any good gift can be corrupted. We just know how to screw up anything. Okay? We're real good. We are professional sinners. God gives us a good gift, and we can find a way to mess it up. Okay? Yes? I'll still go back to earlier. So the phrase, if we go on sitting the liberty, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sin. It seems you could interpret that in the Yeah, except we know better. Uh, the fact is that uh, once you say that Jesus Christ only died for a certain group of people, then you can no longer say that God wants all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. And that it was the plan of God to only save some. So based on the context of Scripture, that has to be rejected. Has to be rejected. Um, and so we do not hold to that. Uh, Christ died for all. Then there are those that reject him. If you reject Christ, there is no other sacrifice that can remove your sins. You rejected the sacrifice that God offered. All right, anything else? All right, we will go start, uh, we will start chapter 11. We are meeting this week, next week, even though it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we are meeting. Uh, so we'll start chapter 11. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.